chapter 5, John chapter 5, our third time being in John 5 together in our study there of the gospel. In the opening first third, Jesus comes to a paralyzed man and he asks him, do you want to be made well? And he explains he has no one to put him in the water. But Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man is made well, takes up his bed and walks. Jesus eventually confronts him later and tells him to stop sinning, lest something worse happen to him. He needs to be spiritually healed, needs to seek the Lord. But the man is also stopped by the religious leaders, the Sabbath police. What are you doing carrying your bed? And he is eventually able to tell them that it was Jesus who healed him that told him to take up his bed and walk. And For that reason, then, we enter into this dispute between the Jews, presumably the leaders of the Jews, and Jesus. We pick it up at verse 16. John 5 and verse 16, and then our sermon text begins at verse 31 for this morning. John 5, verse 16, God's word. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor The Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself And has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. And then here's our focus for today. Verse 31 to the end. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You've sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, 
for the works which a father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. And the father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? God's holy word. Let's ask him for his help and blessing this morning as we bow together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as the Spirit is written of Christ, we may see our Savior in truth on this Lord's day. Let your word be preached truly and carefully. Let it be received attentively and with faith. And we pray that Lord Jesus will be magnified among us on this Lord's day. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Congregation of Christ, I suspect that each one of us is familiar with a courtroom, whether we have been inside of a courtroom or we've, we've seen a courtroom on the news or maybe we've watched a TV program. And as soon as the, the scene opens up and we see the, the judge's bench or the witness stand or the table for the defense or prosecution, we immediately know that we've entered an arena that has its own vocabulary, it has its own protocols, it has its own rules of jurisprudence. We're expecting language of witness and testimony and evidence and objection and so forth. It's a courtroom. Well, this morning we have entered into a courtroom. Jesus Christ is the accused. He's accused because he healed a man on the Sabbath, because he told a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, And now, because he has made himself equal with God, he has said, the Father's been working. He works even on the Sabbath. His works of providence, his works of redemption. If the Father works on the Sabbath, then I should be working on the Sabbath. And now the, the Jews are furious. And Christ has launched into his own defense there. His defense that he and the Father are one. But he knows what they're thinking. By the time we get to verse 31... Jesus makes it clear that he knows what they're thinking, that as he gives this testimony that he is one with the Father, they're saying to themselves, yeah, right, prove it. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Prove it to us. And we we recognize, of course, that in ordinary circumstances, that's a pretty good objection, right? All men are vain. They are of themselves liars. And somebody makes an outstanding claim We want some corroborating evidence. Give us another witness. Give us some proof. Give us the videotape. We want to see it. 
Now, Jesus, of course, is the Son of God, so he doesn't need another witness. His word is always true, and he's one with the Father, so the Father's always bearing testimony through him. But Jesus here is willing to stoop to them, recognizing that that they don't believe him. And so he says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He doesn't mean that absolutely. He bears witness of himself all throughout the Gospel of John, and it's true. But he's saying, my witness in your eyes is not true. My witness in your courtroom is not valid by itself. And rather than argue the point that he's the son of God and has a right to bear witness to himself, he instead says, you want some more evidence? You want another witness? Verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses to me is true is true. This morning in our text, Jesus is setting forth a testimony. But if you ask, what's this really all about? What are verses 31 through 47 all about? I think this is it, that Christ is revealing the real reason that he's being rejected. Christ is revealing the real reason he's being rejected. And the first thing he teaches us is this, that it's not for a lack of evidence. The reason the Jews are rejecting Jesus is not for a lack of evidence. Notice the evidence, the testimony Jesus brings forward. First of all, he points to John the baptizer, a key witness in God's program of redemption. That's the first witness, as it were, that Jesus calls. It's been said that at the time of Jesus, John the Baptist was more popular than Jesus. And you understand why that was? Because John had appeared as if out of nowhere as a true prophet, but there had been no true prophets in Israel for 400 years. Right? Since Malachi, these were the silent years. God had not visited his people. He had not spoken to his people, a new revelation. And then on the scene came this man, a peculiar man, and yet with evidences of being a true prophet. And Israel was thinking, could it be God is speaking again? Is this the, the age of the Messiah? Is, is now the moment? And John, his role given him by the Father was to bear witness. We read in John chapter 1, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light. And in fact, maybe you recall that we read earlier in John that the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem had actually sent a delegation to John to interview him to depose the witness. And John testified, I am not the Christ. But there's one standing among you who's greater than I. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And then the next day was the great reveal that as John was out among the people, he saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's the Messiah. And Jesus here in our text this morning is reminding the Jews that they for a time rejoiced in John. They counted him a prophet. They marveled in the light. And now they are despising the very one John pointed to. How gracious the Father had been to give such a clear witness to his people. John pointing at Jesus, there's the Lamb of God. But then the second witness Jesus calls is his own works, his own works, verse 36. 
But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And everything Jesus did, he was, he was engaging, he was fulfilling God's program of redemption. And so all of his preaching, but maybe especially his miracles, were so many signs revealing that the Father was at work for salvation through Jesus, that God had visited his people. What marvelous works they were, right? That Jesus could, could, could touch an unclean leper and make him clean. That Christ could, could compassionately lift up the sick and heal them. That Christ could triumph over the kingdom of darkness and cast demons out of people. That Christ could raise the dead. What a great work Christ would do. He'd raise himself from the dead. Tremendous works that reveal a kingdom from above. Tremendous works that say this is the one who is now fulfilling everything the Old Testament testified to. But then Christ points to one more witness, the Father. Verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. It's not entirely clear to me. What testimony of the Father Christ is pointing to in particular? It may be the words that came from heaven when Christ was baptized. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. It certainly included the Old Testament. Every page of the Old Testament bore testimony to the coming Christ. Jesus said in verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So we know that the coming of Jesus was not plan B, but written into the whole of the Old Testament. We just saw that in the junior high catechism this morning, that from Genesis 3.15, that first promise of the gospel, from Genesis 3.15 on, it's all revelation of the coming Christ, isn't it? Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection with those two disciples, we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Himself. And so we know, brothers and sisters, that the most important hermeneutical rule, the most important rule in interpreting scripture is this one, that it's all about Jesus. And if you don't see Jesus, you haven't understood the text. The whole Bible is about Christ Jesus. There's lots of books that have been written lately helping us to see Christ in the Old Testament. And if you struggle with that in your teaching of your children or Sunday school class, then if you want some book recommendations, I'd be glad to help you out in that regard. But if we don't see Christ, we have not understood the text. So what we hear from Jesus here, as he brings forth these witnesses, John the Baptist and his own works, and the Father's testimony, Jesus is saying, the reason you're rejecting me is not for lack of evidence. I call all these witnesses, clear and compelling witnesses, overwhelming testimony. But we know, don't we, that the excuse that is so often given in life is, you've given me no proof, right? Not just in hardened Jews of Jesus' day, but in agnostics and atheists of our secular society, where's the proof? 
Where's the proof? You just want me to take that by faith, but there's no proof. Show me the proof. It's actually kind of the, the natural response of our sinful hearts. I didn't know. You didn't tell me. But no one is without excuse, right? Romans 1 says, all of creation bears testimony to the power of God. And so there's no human in the whole earth who hasn't received revelation. Everyone knows that God is. But the wicked heart seeks to suppress that truth and unrighteousness to hide it so they can deny God. The Bible is even clearer proof. The Bible alone reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ, tells of salvation through him. And the fact that many religions from Islam to religious Judaism to the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses to Mormonism, the fact that, that all these religions can embrace a part or the whole of the Bible, supposedly, but not bow to Christ as the eternal Son of God, the only Savior of the world, does not mean that this book is unclear, does not mean that God has given us insufficient evidence. It doesn't mean that anyone can say, God, you didn't prove it, you didn't show me. No, all of that unbelief reveals not something about the book, but it reveals something about the human heart, that it is naturally hard. So Jesus is making clear that the issue is not a lack of clear testimony and evidence, which leaves an impartial jury unable to render verdict. You know, we just, we just can't find in favor of the prosecution. We just don't have enough evidence. No. But it's that there is a biased and prejudiced jury who is hardened against Jesus Christ and will not bow to him. Why are they rejecting Jesus? Number one, it's not a lack of evidence. Number two, it is a lack of love. It is a lack of love. Look at that secondly with me. The Jews assume that they are so responsive to God's word and attentive to to the word of God. But Christ says to them in verse 38... You do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. If you don't believe on Jesus, you don't believe the word. It's really that simple. It's that simple. If, if the word of the Lord of heaven has a place in our hearts, then the one he testifies to would have a place in our hearts. But if we reject the son of God, then we don't receive the word of God. The 16th century reformer John Calvin puts it like this in his commentary. Moses had no other intention than to invite all men to go straight to Christ. And hence it is evident that they who reject Christ are not disciples of Moses. Moses here is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, right? Moses wrote those first five books, and the Jews were particularly devoted to the Pentateuch, to those, to those books, Calvin goes on, he says, Besides, how can that man have the word of life abiding in him who drives from himself the life itself? How can that man keep the doctrine of the law who destroys the soul of the law? For the law without Christ is empty. The word law is another synonym, isn't it, for 
the Old Testament, particularly the first five books, the books of Moses. But Calvin says, how can you claim to have the law abiding in your heart if you have rejected, destroyed the very soul of the law, who is Christ? The Jews were very well read in the scriptures. Should not underestimate how much they studied the book. Scholars tell us that they memorized large, large portions of Scripture. It was part of their ordinary schooling. And the religious leaders and the scribes, they they poured over the book. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And he seems to be saying that you assume that just by familiarity with the text that you are saved. Just by laboring in the words of the text, you think you have salvation. Just by memorizing the word. Again, even the Jews still today are, in some quarters, quite given to the book, the scrolls. Let me read you this interesting comment from one commentator, which reveals that, but also maybe embarrasses us a bit. He writes, if you go to the Catskill Resorts in upstate New York in the summer, you will see devoted Orthodox Jews sitting in the heat of the afternoon on their holidays, their vacation, poring over the scriptures and the rabbinic commentaries hour after hour. In stark contrast, what passes for Bible study among Christians today, namely a few people sitting in a circle for half an hour, sharing their uninformed responses to a cursory reading of the text, would have been met with utter stupefaction by these ancient Jews, by, both, by the Jews, both ancient and modern. <laughs> a little embarrassing for us, perhaps, because sometimes we don't give ourselves to the study of the words of the text. But we assume if we just sit around and talk about it, whatever we feel or whatever opinions we have must be valid and true. Well, the Jews would be horrified by that, at least some of them. And yet, for all their detailed study, they missed the main thing. They know all the words, but they don't understand to whom the words point, the Lord Jesus. And they think, as one Jewish rabbi put it, that the more you study the law, the more life you have. The more you hold the text, the more you read it, the more you memorize it, automatically the more life you have. But the text doesn't save you. The Bible is not your Savior. Your Savior is the one to whom the Bible points. Right? It's not the text that saves you, but the text is the voice of the one who saves you. When we say we trust the Bible, we don't mean we trust the Bible to save us. We mean we trust the one who speaks in the Bible and the one who's revealed in the Bible, our Lord Jesus Christ. What the Jews do still happens today, not just among religious Jews, but visit a liberal seminary. Scholars who know the text of the scripture better than I ever will and yet have no true faith in Jesus as a savior to deliver them from their sins. Scholars who know all the narratives down to every syllable in the Greek but don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. What a warning here Jesus gives us. Imagine having a life that's Bible-saturated, not having Christ. Imagine having a life that's very religious. I go to worship services. I memorize the scriptures. I go to Bible studies. 
but I don't actually know Jesus. It's an unsettling thought, isn't it? An unsettling thought that you could know God's word so carefully in one sense and yet not see Christ. Now, they were right to search the scriptures. And there's no other way to know Christ but in the scriptures. And whenever our personal study, quote-unquote, or Bible studies, quote-unquote, become just the pooling of uninformed opinions in which we assume that whatever we feel, whatever we think must be true, then we should remember, no, Christ is found in the scriptures. And if you want to know Christ, you've got to go to his word, and his word is words. So you have to puzzle over words and syllables and grammar because that's how he's been pleased to reveal himself. But never should we think that once we've mastered the grammar of the text, Once we've got all the Bible stories down, once we've come to embrace the Reformed confessions as themselves a true representation of the word, that therefore we've got Christ. Jesus says in verses 39 and 40, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And there's the issue. It's not that there's no evidence. It's just that they're unwilling to come to Jesus. That's the issue. It's not... It's not even that they fear that in coming to him, he won't receive them. The whole Old Testament, God reveals, doesn't he, a a merciful Savior who comes for his people, who are oppressed, who are enslaved, who are sinners. God reveals his suffering servant as the one who who will not break off a bruised reed, who will not snuff out a smoldering wick. He's not harsh. He comes to save The reason they don't embrace him is not because they fear they're going to be driven away. But the reason they will not embrace him is what? Because they have malice towards him and they have no love for God. Jesus says it in verse 42. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. To love God is to submit to his word. To love God is to believe on the son he loves. To love God is to want fellowship with him, to want to know his favor and his blessing upon our lives. But here's the issue. That's not the thing that grabs the hearts of the Jewish leaders. Notice what Jesus says in verse 44. How can you believe, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? You see what he's saying? He's saying you, you religious leaders, your quest in life, your aim, your great, great desire is to have honor among men, 
Right? Jesus taught us this, that, that many of the religious leaders in Israel, they love to walk around in long robes. They pray on the street corner so everybody will hear them. They want the best place at the banquets. They want to sit at the head of the table. They want to be thought well of among men. They want their fellow scholars to tell them what great men they are. But they don't seek the honor that comes from God. They don't long for God's approval. They don't, they don't long for God's favor. They don't long for the, the glory of eternal life swollen with pride for the vain things of the earth. Calvin has it exactly right when he writes, this is a remarkable passage which teaches that the gate of faith is shut against all whose hearts are preoccupied with a vain desire for earthly glory. Never is a man prepared to obey the heavenly doctrine until he is convinced that his principal object throughout his whole life ought to be that he may be approved by God. That's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? If you ask what separates, what separates humanity in this world, it really comes down to that, doesn't it? What, what's the principal object of my life? Is it that I may be approved of God or is it that I may be approved by men? What does my heart seek? What's my greatest treasure? To be accepted of the living God? Or to be accepted by men upon the earth? If we really want to know God, then we see from the scriptures there's no way to know God except to know him as the God of grace. We've sinned and we've rebelled. There's not a way back to God where you can just go back to the Garden of Eden and say, let's have it like it was. The only way to come to God now is as the God of grace. The only way to come to him now is as a sinner crying out for mercy, acknowledging our guilt, seeking him through Jesus Christ, saying, I, God, I long for your favor and I know I can only have it through your Son. There's no other way to the glory of God. But they don't want that. They don't love God, Jesus says. Well, what do they love? Well, they love themselves. In fact, I'll point your head in the Gospel of John to chapter 12, where we read in John 12, verse 42 and verse 43, that nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. If Jesus had only been their kind of Messiah, if Jesus had only been their kind of Messiah, they would have accepted him. If he had come among them as one of them, one who cared about man's opinion, if he had come to stroke their egos and flatter them, if he had come to live according to their rule system, they developed this nice rule system that if you, you keep these 39 or 40 laws about the Sabbath and you've kept the Sabbath, and Christ, when he heals a man and tells a man to carry his mat, he's not respecting their rules. They had made their own religion up. And if Christ had only played by their rules and, and embraced their religion, they would have embraced him. But Christ comes saying, I don't care about the honor of men. I care about the honor of my Father. And for that, they will crucify him. They don't like what they see in Jesus. What's the ambition of your life this morning?
Do you love God? Do you love the honor of God? Do you long for the approval of God? That the great almighty Lord would say of you that your sins are forgiven, that you have peace with God, that you have a place in his home eternally, that he would own you as his son, his daughter? Or is your life wrapped up in the praise of men? The other children at school wanting so much to be liked, to be popular. In the world of academia, that all the other scholars would recognize that I'm wise. In the world of business, that other business owners would say, my, you run a tight ship. That in your marriage, you just hunger above everything else, that your spouse would respect you and count you important. What's the heartthrob of your life? What's your ambition? Those who seek the honor of men will not come to Jesus Christ. But those who say, God, I desire more than anything else to be approved by you. I seek your glory. Those are the ones who find that Christ is the only way there. Why do they reject Jesus? It's not for a lack of evidence, number one. It is for a lack of evidence, excuse me, it is for a lack of love of God, number two. And finally this morning, it will not stand in the judgment. It will not stand in the judgment. Jesus says at the end that the very one they think they're confiding in, they call Moses as their witness. Moses, take the stand. Tell Jesus he's wrong and we're right. And Jesus says on the last day, you're going to discover that your star defense witness is going to turn and point the finger at you and say, you missed everything I said. You rejected every word I spoke because you rejected the one I was pointing to and every word I wrote. The word of God, the law, the books of Moses will condemn you. If we create a religion, even if we use the Bible, even if we come to church regularly, if we create a religion that is moralism, a Christless Christianity, where we're full of rules and regulations and protocols for the Christian life, but we don't know grace falling upon Jesus as our Savior, then in the end, all the word does is not defends us, but condemns us. You know, Jesus had asked that man who is lame that startling question, do you want to be made well? We noted before, it's such an interesting question. Do you want to be made well? Who, what, what crippled man, what paralyzed man wouldn't say yes? But being made well would change his life. No longer living by handouts, no longer the life he had developed, but it would be a new life. Jesus meets him later in the temple says, you need to stop sinning. You need to be made really well. You need to come to me completely. 
But you see that question, do you want to be made well, is the question that hangs over these religious leaders. As you talk about the word of, of, of God and the law of Moses and the coming Messiah, do you really want what the Messiah brings? He, brings? he brings forgiveness for sinners. He brings grace for the spiritually dead. Are you willing to confess that's who you are? Do you want to be made well? And the answer to religious leaders up to this point is no. We are quite content with our religiosity. We are quite content with our rules and regulations. We are quite happy with the religion we have. And in this religion, we have places of rank and honor. And we love that. We don't want what you bring, Jesus. Christ says, if you don't want to be made well, if you don't want salvation through my blood, then the law of Moses will condemn you. But Christ in his grace has given us this word, brothers and sisters, that we might not be condemned. Oh, we know about courtrooms, maybe from novels or newscasts or TV shows, but to stand in a courtroom is an intimidating thing. To be the accused in a courtroom is an intimidating thing. We may not have to appear in a human court in this lifetime, but we will all appear in court on the last day. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one on that day will be able to say, I didn't know. You didn't tell me. No one will be able to say, look at my religion. I did all these things. It's all going to come down to one question. Did you receive Jesus? Did you welcome the Christ? Did you believe on the Messiah God sent you? And our great joy is to say, yes, Lord. That's my only hope. That's my. That's all that I have. And God will say that's everything you need. The catechism asks, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead terrify you? No, it says, how does Christ return to judge the living and the dead? Comfort you. In all my distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the just judgment of God in my place and has removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and the glory of heaven. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, how we praise you for the abundant testimony of your holy word. You have stooped down to our weak minds and our wavering faith to testify across every page of Scripture of the Savior that you yourself have provided, the one you have testified to, and the one you've commended to us 
even by raising him from the dead. O God in heaven, we thank you that in Christ is all the righteousness we need, the perfect righteousness. And we pray, God, that you would save us then from a love for the vainglory of man. Let us love you for the Christ you've given. Let us embrace the Savior you've provided. Let us rest ourselves in him, that we may live this life with great hope and anticipation that the judge we will meet in the courtroom is the one with nail-pierced hands. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together number 393.